You are tuned into the Dr. Tina Show with Dr. Tina Moore. For more, visit drtina.com. On this episode of the Dr. Tina Show, I am delighted to bring you an interview with my friend, Mark Groves. You may know him better as Create the Love over on Instagram, his gigantic Instagram page. Mark and I met online and became fast friends at the beginning of this pandemic, and his insight and friendship has been paramount in keeping my head in the game throughout this entire time. Mark is a human connection specialist. He studies the intersection of individual psychology and how it pertains to group psychology. I hope you enjoy listening to this interview as much as I did recording it. Awesome. Mark Groves, you're here. We're doing this. I'm so excited. Welcome to the Dr. Tina Show. My gosh, I'm so excited to chat with you. Always. I know. I've been inspired by your by your way of showing up in the world consistently. You inspire me to show up um, more fully, more authentically always. So I appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you too. I, I love our text exchanges. I love the insight that you bring to the world. You make me, you make me pause and be a gentler version of myself when I want to just be like a fiery dragon. (laughs) I want to be too, you know, um, my partner gave me a beautiful reflection after I recorded a, a video of some thoughts I was having on some psychological uh, things that were going on that I was observing. And she said, you know, when you record a video from a dysregulated, passionate state, you cause division um, in people because you cause their nurse, nervous system to mirror yours with dysregulation. And that was a really beautiful piece of feedback because I started to see like, oh yeah, if I can just be calm in my discussion and exploration of what's occurring, perhaps it'll allow people to just be a little less activated and and bring in more information, uh, which is of course the challenge of the current times is people are so captured by fear and fear by design doesn't allow us to problem solve. I mean, that's not its function. Its function is to activate our system so we can go and move towards survival, which, you know, the body can't differentiate between us, uh, an imaginary threat, not calling anything imaginary, but an imaginary threat versus a tiger. So that's, you know, just like you can be in conflict with a partner and your body acts like it's beside a tiger, even though you're actually safe. Mm-hmm. It's true. And when we are in the fear state, we our IQ automatically lowers. So we're not making the best decisions. Um, so I, you and I met this year online, and I actually did not know of your account until I think you reached out to me at some point, and I, and I found your Create the Love account. And it's, it's ginormous, and it's wonderful, and it brings such wonderful perspective to the world every single day. And it's been it's, it's kind of, it pops up always on my feed and it's been this beacon of light for me to reflect on. And then you and I just started kind of messaging back and forth and you gave me great strength during uh, these early, those early months of this pandemic. I wasn't really sure what the hell I was doing, except I knew that we were being lied to. And I knew that we were not getting the story as it should be told. What, regardless of my side of the story, I just knew basic sciences were not being honored. And I think at first I was battling for the sake of science, just purely for the sake of what I had dedicated my entire life to, um, was just being disintegrated in front of me. And I, I was appalled 
And here you showed up, this nice, calm voice of reason. <laughs> and you've become a very kind friend. And so I'm so glad to have you today. I don't really know what we're even going to talk about, but I know it's going to be awesome. Will you tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you're about? Yeah, no, thank you for having me. And, and um, I mirror your experience of me right back to you. Um, you've been a beacon, as I said, of inspiration, but also hope that I wasn't crazy, you know, that... My background, um, I don't normally say this part of my background because it's usually not relevant, but I think it's relevant in this case. Yeah, my origin story comes from actually being a pharmaceutical rep. I was a pharmaceutical rep for 14 years. I worked in pretty much every specialty you can imagine. I ended my career working in oncology and hematology, but I spent time in every section, uh, cardiovascular, gastroenterology, endocrinology. I mean, obviously they're all overlapping depending on what you're selling. And um, I was really fascinated with exploring like how do you change people's behavior because I was a rep. So I wanted to sell people and get them to change from one product to another. So I studied how do you essentially, I get you, let's just call it what it is, manipulate human behavior. Reading books like How Do You Win Friends and Influence People. I have a book called How Do You Get Anyone to Do Anything. I studied NLP, which is neurolinguistic programming. And it was when I went through a breakup in my late 20s that I recognized, like, why am I so good about at talking about anything but my feelings? Like, it's not a skill set issue. There's something more going on here. And I got engaged. It was an engagement that ended that sort of, I would say, like, for sake of a better term, awakened me, like made me start to think about life and why do we do what we do? I hadn't really explored that question. Why am I the way I am? Why am I afraid of love? Why am I afraid? Why do I, um, why do I not have this ability to navigate relationships in a really healthy way? And it made me start to study romantic relationships. And because of my background in pharma, I had the ability to read clinical trials. I've been trained many times in that, understand them. So I started to study the science of relationships. Why do they work? Why do they not? I went back to school, studied positive psychology. And I started to write about what I was learning and started to create the love of my Instagram account um, about seven years ago. And just started to, you know, I'd share a quote and then write about what was sort of the thoughts I had on that. I found that like a lot of my work at the beginning was sort of like a form of exorcism, you know, it's like shame. I was excising shame by sharing my mistakes, but then what I learned from them and then, you know, I, I taught people how to navigate breakups, how to, you know, because I felt like so much of us, when we go through a breakup, we believe there's some sort of failure in us, that our relational status sort of indicates our value as a human being when those two things are not correlated, but we've been socialized that they are. And when I was in pharma, I really saw like when I started to do emotional navigation and relational navigation, I started to see that so much of the cause of actual disease was correlated to inflammation and inflammation was correlated to emotion and correlated to relationships. And I started to see that so much, you know, there's obviously a lot of value that allopathic medicine has brought to the world. I also saw that so much of it was like band-aiding the actual source of things, the actual cause of things. And I left pharma because, it, you know, obviously it wasn't aligned anymore from a perspective of how I saw the world. And in the last couple of years, I'm Canadian, so I've gotten to observe 
you know, I don't know if there's another term other than the fuckery that has occurred and the leader of Canada. And I start to, you know, I've studied abusive relationships, you know, I study these things and I had huge activation response to the way that I was observing. I, I looked at the science of lockdowns, which there really is no science. Right. And <laughs> that was fast. And it didn't make sense to me. Like at first, of course, I think like most people, although maybe not for you, but for me, I was like, okay, I don't know a lot about coronaviruses. I don't know a lot about the flu in general. I was skeptical always of the flu vaccine just because that data is, you know, kind of sketchy too. And I had never studied vaccines. I don't have kids and I hadn't done it yet, but I would have. And so it forced me into reading a lot because I was like, am I going to put this in my body? Am I not? And I just felt like something was really off with lockdowns. They didn't make sense to me. But I was also like, hey, it's new. This is new. We've never done this before. Maybe this will work. You know, I get it. But then as data came in and what I was observing, I was like, this just doesn't make sense to me. Like this is causing significant harm. I was watching my friends lose their businesses. I was watching my friends who work in, in essential services being put at risk. I was watching other people I knew who worked off their laptops, much like I could work off my laptop, being totally fine and safe and be able to monetize. So they're not affected in any way. And I saw just, I think like everybody, this continued stretch of um, monetary stretch from poor people to, you know, the middle class basically getting decimated. And I just, something was up and I, it was hard for me to reconcile with my body, like all the things I was feeling. And yet I saw this narrative continue to be reinforced that I just felt like people weren't telling the truth, which was actually the source of the motivation of the beginning of my work about relationships is I felt that no one was telling the truth about relationships. And I felt like I wanted to be the person who could and, or, or be one of them. And in this experience, you know, telling the truth, um, I don't think has ever had a greater cost. Like I'd really had, to, I've had to heal a lot of my, my sort of you know, I healed my individual codependencies for the most part, you know, like, which is ultimately, can I be me at the cost of belonging? Can I choose myself over this connection? And I've really had to navigate that, you know, when you're used to getting some pushback on what you say, uh, you know, you, you do negotiate it a bit, but you also get celebrated a lot, you know, in social media, if you're not being in any way challenging to structures or narratives. Uh, but man, with this, I've had to reconcile, like, what is my integrity? What does truth mean for me? What do I stand for? What do I want? How do I want to remember myself? How do I want to be remembered? Um, and all those were pretty simple answers, actually, although they were complex because they potentially meant that I, I wouldn't belong or that I'd be in this very small group that... You know, ironically, though, you find that you belong to this other whole experience, you know, much like our friendship has been birthed from this. And I've found so many incredible uh, people through this, you know, and I think it's, it reminds me of a, I think it's a Carl Jung quote, or it might be Timothy Leary, um, which the whole thing is much longer, but essentially the message is find the others. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really brought, I mean, I've lost so many friendships during this 
In the end, though, I wasn't surprised at all by those particular people's reaction. So it really wasn't a huge loss. You know, the, the brave people remain brave and the cowards remain cowards and the ones who would prefer to be silent so that, and I get it again, I, I, I understand that some people have jobs and children and things at risk. Like you mentioned, those people remain silent. Uh, a lot of doctors remain silent for, you know, risk of potentially losing their license. But at the end of the day, I, I was like, you know what, fuck it. I've got my daughter, she's 21. And I need her to know at the end of the day that I stood on the right side of things. And I just cannot tolerate injustice. Me and too. so, you know, Something it's in my cells. <laughs> yes. it's like, no, I, I know I you know. have the same. <laughs> Must have former lives where we were like, I don't know. Oh, I was, stakes or... I was burned at, I am sure of it. So I, this, I was like, this is not my first rodeo with this. So let's go. Like, so. <laughs> yeah. There's like, I just had no choice. Like for me, it was like, this actually isn't a choice. Like the only choice is to dedicate myself to the exploration of what is the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and to trying to maintain objectivity, which is really hard as a human being. Um, and to try to explore nuance again, you know, I think what led to this experience to the sort of perfect storm is that cancel culture eradicated nuance, it eradicated discourse. Um, and, and it made it so like what I've been so interested about psychologically, but also disturbed is that there's this one story and this story that's supported by the government and pharma and there's obviously many motivations to keeping this story alive, but anything, like literally anything that isn't that is not true or false or anti-vax when it's easy if you put a title on anything that's anti-vax. It's much like the other side, sheep, all the different language we use. But as soon as you put anti-vax, you're able to put someone in a group. And I've watched governments do this too. Anti-vaxxers in Canada, the prime minister said that anti-vaxxers are racist and misogynist. You know, and you see that's that's deliberate psychologically. One, because if you put people in a group, um, you're able to begin to dehumanize them if you other them. And you're also, um, if you call them misogynist and racist, you're able to then create this psychological cross association with these other groups, which we would obviously not tolerate. And then we'd be willing to probably harm them. And so I've been watching this occur being like, whoa, oh man, how is everyone missing this? But if you've been captured because of our fear and because of the incessant media, um, which our biology is really easy to capture, you know, like governments have always known this and pharma's known this too. This isn't something fucking new, you know? Yeah, you've got the background of, I mean, I actually, when I was younger, in my early 20s, right out of college, that was the job I was going after was a pharmaceutical rep. And I, uh, and this is no diss on you, I just in good faith couldn't do diss it. it. I, no, I, I went, it. I went, I went on an interview. And I was like, I can't do this. I can't be a legal drug dealer. <laughs> can't do it. And I ended up walking into a naturopathic doctor's office and getting a job there instead, which was like the antithesis of... <laughs> well done. Well uh, and done. it was just a complete course change on my life, like complete 180. Um, I mean, I was headed into... I was going to become an MD. I mean, I had been... I had decided that when I was 12 years old. Yeah. I... I had been a sick kid my whole life. I was going to be a doctor. And I quickly realized, wait a minute, the system I had been a patient of clearly hadn't helped me at all. I was just on five different medications at that point and a complete basket case. And 
thank God I found Dr. Rick Marinelli in naturopathic medicine and turned the ship around. But um, I mean, when, when you've been a part of it, you can see it. So you're watching the deception in real time with this background that you have of this 14 years in this industry. I know many people who are pharmacists. I have friends who are pharmaceutical reps and they've made great lives for themselves, but you can start to see the deceit and how these things are managed. It's, it it becomes clear as day, but the public at large has no idea, right? Totally agree. You know, a lot of my friends who are reps actually see it. And I think it is large part to we're or we are or have been part of that marketing machine. Um, when you're a rep, it's really fascinating. Like I grew up in um, my father being in medicine. He studied, he did research, he studied heart failure. And so he worked with reps because he used to be the head of cardiovascular education for the area that we were in. And so he knew lots of reps and he had good relationships with reps. They were all, you know, wonderful people and good friends of his. And so I, that's what introduced me to the industry. And I had always been in sales. So it, I hadn't, I had always been thought that medicine was God, you know, in a lot of ways. I think most of us are taught that medicine is our savior. You know, we, I think it's Ram Das who says that, um, you know, that we've, what is it that we've made the, essentially the doctor, the high priest. And it's fascinating because, you know, as you're saying about when you go into it as a rep, you're like, it's like when you go to a national meeting, it's like going to the club, you know, you're like captured in the machine. Like we're here to save people. We're here to help people. And that's why the intention of anyone I know who works in the industry is really actually very beautiful. And you really do contribute some in some of the products that you work with to helping people. Um, What's been interesting to observe now looking back, like I remember my first ever uh, interview series that I did with a company, I didn't get the job. And the reason I didn't get the job is I followed up with the district manager I interviewed with and I asked him, why didn't I get it? And he said to me, because when I asked you the question, what was the role of a rep? You didn't say selling. Oh. (laughs) And I was like, you know, my answer was like, help people, support pharmacists, support doctors with education, you know, whatever it was. And I was like, oh, and, you know, I not really thought about that till that informed, obviously, the next time I interviewed and got asked that question. But I hadn't really thought about that till, you know, what I find so interesting now is that two years ago, people hated pharmaceutical companies in general. And now people are celebrating like, don't they would never do that. Like, don't in some way, like, I think when we're so captured by fear, and there's a solution to that fear. And I know Matthias Desmond talks about that being, you know, sort of a, a, a soup that creates mass formation. Um, but what's interesting is like we, when we idolize something or believe it is the way out, we then can't see anything that might disprove that to be true. And when we see this person or this company or this thing as a savior, then we're not able to then humanize them again or or normalize them again or criticize them again because in some way it threatens the one path we know to be the way out. And what I've noticed and what really disturbed me a lot, I mean, a lot of shit has disturbed me in the last two years, but what I was really disturbed by is by whenever you bring up any objection to the vaccine or or anything – the news has already created an automatic reply. Yep. Right? And in pharma, and this is true of all sales, 
you get a list usually, if it's a good sales company, you'll get a list of the objections that you would receive about your product. And they're pretty normal, pretty, you know, like it costs too much. It doesn't have any long-term data. This other drug's better, you know, all these things. And then you'd have a reply to how you should handle that objection with which clinical trial. If you had a criticism of clinical trials of your own, you'd have all these answers, like what did that number mean? And I started to see that parroting occur where they were parroting exactly what the news had said. And you saw this with, there's no long-term data. And then you saw, no, mRNA vaccines have been around for years. They just haven't happened to be on the market. You know, like it's, I watch it because I was part of the machine. I'm like, it's like watching the fucking machine operate. And I'm yep. like, wow, I did that. I'm operating the karma, the karmic duty of that now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. When you can, when you can see it clear. I mean, having been in medicine as long as I have been, and then, I mean, I've literally been, I was a very sick child. So I was in the machine since I was a child. And then I worked up in research at Oregon Health Sciences University in undergrad. And then I went to work for my mentor. And I've been literally, and I mean, when I stepped away from my clinic a few years ago, it's because I had literally been inside a medical clinic my entire life. And I was just done. I was like, I am done being people's doctor. I am done being responsible for anyone but myself. I'm over, I do not, I want to see what life feels like outside of a clinic, whether I'm the patient or the physician or the staff, right? And then I started studying, I did a complete 180. I started coaching doctors on how to do digital and online marketing. And so you start studying psychology and you start studying NLP and the same thing. And I started learning how to use words to influence. And just a quick backup when I was in high school, I was, I I ended up with a uh, American history teacher for two years who was an immigrant from Eastern Germany, so he mm. had immigrated before wow. the wall fell. Yeah, he, his name was Doctor or Mister Gebauer. He wore all brown every day, and he taught us all about propaganda. He read us the history books that he had gotten from Germany about the same periods that we were reading about in the American oh, history books. Wow, and they were what vast. a contrast that would be vastly different. I ended up having a bit of a hiccup with my health at the time and dropped out of Spanish. I had to take some time off from school, came back to school, ended up in a German class. That was my language of choice at that point. So I took several years of German, went to Germany the year after the wall fell. So I saw Eastern Germans being segregated against and being beaten, being, I mean, it was terrible. It was crazy what I saw. And I very, it was like a very, you know, it was early 90s. We had a lot going on. There was a lot of just turmoil in the world. And so that really formed me. So when this all started, it was clear as day what was going on to me. I was like, hello, mm-hmm. I can see all of it <laughs> from many yeah. perspectives. Like I'm a doctor. I've almost died of viruses. I've studied them. I've studied marketing. I understand the language you're using. I've studied propaganda. I couldn't have been poised to be in a better position to see this. And so when you're seeing it and you're like, come on, guys, like I'm trying to help you out here. This is clear as day. And people got so bamboozled, which was not at all shocking. I, I, I don't, I hate to say this. I didn't expect humans to really show me much better than that, but I didn't think so many would fall. And I certainly didn't think the Canadians would have taken that the way that they did, because I know a lot of Canadians through my schooling, and they were such a rabble rouser 
group. And so I just have been really, and you and I have talked about this on, you know, texts and messages, like, what the hell is going on? What what do we know we can call it mass formation psychosis, but you've really worded it nicely. What is, talk more about the belonging to a group thing and how human that Mm. is, because I think that's a huge part of this. Yeah. I mean, relationally, whether it's, you know, when we think about someone growing up, ultimately from about the age of zero to eight, you're learning how do I belong to my family, my culture, my society. You're learning who do I need to be to be loved. You know, Gabor Monte words this so beautifully. He says that we have two needs as humans. We have the need for authenticity and we have the need for belonging. And when authenticity threatens belonging, belonging wins. It, be- it wins till it doesn't, right? Till we recognize that when you start to speak out, um, which could, if we're just talking relationally, just to give people maybe a better um, framework, when you start to speak your truth in a relationship and it costs you a relationship, you feel the grief of the loss of that relationship. There's without a doubt that, and you could get into attachment and all that kind of stuff, but it's not really, it's not necessary to go that deep. Just to be able to recognize that there's a grief that occurs there, but there's also this interesting thing that occurs, which is you begin to hear your own voice, right? Like you begin to hear your own voice, you begin to feel your own power, and you begin to see that you got your own back. And as you do that, you actually start to source and sense that you belong to yourself, that your self-worth is not dependent on, if I say this, will you love me? Which is how most of us operate, and that's ultimately the the core of codependency. But that's also really the core of most relationships is like, I'm going to be who I need to be in order for this relationship to stay together rather than thrive, rather than deepen, rather than have intimacy, rather than actually be the source of liberation for both of us and empowerment for both of us. It's interesting that we often go to relationships and lose our power and lose our truth and lose our authenticity. Um, And so When you begin to birth it yourself, you grieve that you've never done that. And it's so easy to go back. You know, I've I've seen this and and so many blessings to the people who have really been so scared of speaking up. And I've watched them tag me in stories and then begin. And you can hear their voice shake because there is what is actually being healed is generations of trauma, generations of silence. Like if you find there's a lump in your throat when you want to speak the truth or your body just wants to shut down, that's because you may have never done that. You may have never seen anyone do that. It's like challenging any system. If you're the first person to uh, leave an alcoholic in your family system, if you're the first person to get sober, if you're the first person to stand up to something or to say no more or to develop boundaries, you're going to shake the system. And that sense of belonging is really fascinating because as I said to you earlier, like you feel like you no longer belong to your immediate maybe friendship group or whatever it might be. But actually, if if you look, there are so many other people who are speaking up and you now belong to a group that values truth and authenticity. And that actually becomes the gateway to being welcomed as opposed to like the reason you're not welcome, which is a huge pivot. And there's something interesting about that too, because I think on a physiological level, truth resonates in a totally different place in our body. It's like lies and propaganda um, hijack the mind and hijack the nervous system. But there's something about the resonance of realness 
that triggers people like fuck. Like, let's be honest, we know that. Um, <laughs> That's my job. <laughs> yeah. But when you spoke, I didn't know who you were before you started speaking up. I felt it. I was like, she knows what she's talking about. She's fierce. She cares. Like everything you do is from such a deep sense of love. And I felt that. And I was like, oh yeah, this is my people. Like I knew right away. And that I've actually in the last two months, I'd say, especially in the last month, seen so many people begin to activate that part of themselves. And that gives me a lot of hope. You know, when when people sort of talk about the more spiritual aspect of what's occurring, they sort of call it the great awakening rather than the great reset. That's where I'm like, oh, imagine if the purpose of all of this was actually to shake people out of the system. Because yeah. you and I have both been part of systems that didn't work. And so whether you choose to get kicked out of the system or you have to leave it, either way, you recognize when you're outside of it that there is a system operating. And that is the greatest gift, although that causes an immense amount of dissonance because you're like, wait, they lie about those things, you know? Yeah. But all of a sudden you're now, it's kind of like watching The Matrix is a good mindfuck because I watched all three of them. And then the fourth one uh, recently, I rewatched them all. And I was like, wow, this is, I didn't get this when I first watched, I think when did the Matrix first come out in like 90 something? Yeah. I didn't get it then. I was on my way to become a pharmaceutical rep, you know, <laughs> like blue uh, I freaked out. I, I left the theater. I saw it with my dad and I left the theater. I think I was like 19. I don't know. I can't remember. I left the theater and I was like, oh my God. That was it. Like the first Matrix. I was like, that's everything, Dad. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, humans are viruses. That was everything. <laughs> and he just, I remember his look like, is my daughter insane? Did I send her to college and get a crazy person back? <laughs> you're like, yes, actually, yes. But it isn't is, that though. interesting? You seem crazy to what is normal, but is actually normal, you know, in some sense. Oh, I saw so much of this when I think I was about 14 or 15. I think I, I clearly snapped out of whatever I was in and I woke up. It was very much like in the matrix when you get unplugged and I was like, what the hell is going on? And then when I was 19, I clear, I, I've told you this, I told my mom this whole elaborate story, a virus was going to come through. It was going to impact people in a major way, particularly obese people. And that way more people were going to be obese then. And because we're old enough, we saw that increase. We saw, and if people really want to get down to this, something that no one's talking about is we really should be blaming the food industry. Oh. I mean, that's that's who hijacked everything and screwed everything up. And if you read, this is this book, I, I actually, I keep this here to show everyone. I don't know if you've read this book. I haven't. Salt, Sugar, Fat by Michael Moss. The first chapter will infuriate you. I mean, they knew this was happening <laughs> early on. They knew the 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 presidents and CEOs of these big, huge Nestle and all the big companies, they knew exactly what was happening to the population at large because of their food that they were creating. And they chose not to do anything about it. And the whole book is just basically how you're, we've been hijacked. Um, and so that's the beginning, right? And people don't want to, the cognitive dissonance, like that requires you to sit down and think about things. And I think yes. for people like my daughter's age, who's 21, I mean, she's in her mind, there's never been a decent food supply. There was barely one in our generation. Right. So it's really just one of those situations where like, I don't want to think about stuff that started when my parents were kids. I mean, how does that affect me now? What's that got to do with it, Tina? What's We're supposed to just take your shot and 
take your medicine and you'll get better. And it's like, mm-hmm. dude, the plan isn't working. <laughs> it's not working. It's, it's not, not, it's not working. And where, where does this inherent sense of belonging end and like common sense begin? Because what are all these people going to do who have been bamboozled? You know, they did their two, maybe their three, maybe their four shots. I mean, what's the latest out of Israel? Four shots ain't working. It's not going to stop Omicron. Yeah. You know, like where do people, what happens to humans now is really kind of where my head's at. Like, what do we do with these people who've been bamboozled? Whether they're on, they come to our way of thinking or not, like. Yeah, it's. You know, I remember uh, it, it, for me, it brings up a line I remember hearing from Tony Robbins where he said that we change for two reasons. Um, one, because it hurts so much we have to, or two, because we learn so much and we have to. And that learning really creating pain, the dissonance of um, of the knowledge and what it might mean about our own behaviors. Like I remember in sales learning that it's really emotional, like uh, someone learning that the thing they're giving might be causing harm or they might not be at the edge of knowledge or wisdom or medicine that would cause them to change their choice. Uh, And what I have witnessed or or what I know to be true is that, uh, is that, you know, when I think of something like the, and this is, (laughs) I'm sure people will be triggered by this example in some way, but when I think about the act of circumcision, circumcision is without a doubt genital mutilation. That's not, I don't know how anyone can question that. And it's ritual and and religion that has been hidden in science. The science of it is awful. It's just like when I first, I remember I had a blood test where I had elevated cholesterol in the blood test. And the doctor who I went and saw was a GP. And he said to me, well, I'm going to have to refer you to a lipid clinic. I was like, you didn't even ask me what I'm eating. Like you didn't even ask me anything. So I started to study cholesterol. Well, I sold a statin for about a week before it got pulled off the market. Uh, it was Baycol. And I remember being like, I, when I started to study cholesterol, my mind was fucking blown because everything I was taught as a rep was, it was just so, and then I saw the interaction of the sugar and the food, they took fat out of foods and then they started to put sugar in them and, and insert inflammatory process, diabetes, cholesterol, cardiac, heart disease, right? And like, wait, fat doesn't cause it? Like my mind had to shatter because I had so much dissonance because who was I? And I participated in this lie and then people lied to me. So I'd already gone through the grieving of being lied to um, by pharma. And so when I look at what's going on now and I think of like some of the people I love most in the world are still like sprinting to go get a vaccine. And I have, I literally have no judgment of them. I, I honestly, I, I don't disagree with their choice because for me, it's their choice for them and it's being made based on their fears and their understanding of the world. Yeah. And we are definitely on the edge where the information is so obvious that you can't help at some point by not seeing that perhaps what I've put in my body, if I keep doing it, especially, might actually inhibit my immune response in the future. You know, like talking about um, original antigenic sin or antibody-dependent enhancement, like all of these things that are very real possibilities 
and there, depending on the data you look at, there's some evidence of these things occurring. The data in Canada and like the UK and Israel and Scotland, if you're willing to look at it, then you are being invited to wake up. So I think that the information is becoming almost so overwhelming that it will not be possible. Like I don't, when we actually do a postmortem on what's occurred, which I'm sure the powers that be will try to prevent as much as possible. Um, I honestly don't know how people will not be held accountable. Um, I'm hopeful, at least in the U.S., that it'll occur. And the U.S. will lead the charge because, um, and I don't associate with any political party, but if the Republicans win the House, which I have no idea how they won't because the other side is basically writing their own ticket out, (laughs) they... They will investigate all of this. Mm-hmm. And when they do, we will discover a lot of things that have been pretty obvious. You know, like I have a really good friend who's a surgeon and I asked them if they knew about the PCR test because they were talking about getting the vaccine and all these things. And and they were like, no, I don't know about the PCR test. I'm like, Jesus, like you're mm-hmm. in the hospital recommending these things and the like beginning of the deception or the the misleading, let's even call it, begins with that. And it's so obvious. I used to sell a drug that used the PCR test. That's why I knew about the PCR test. Um, and it's like, I have friends who just call me a conspiracy theorist. And I'm like, great. As what is that meme that says? Uh, it's a fortune just, teller. It's your <laughs> yeah, that's right. right. What's well, the difference between teller. a conspiracy theorist and the truth is six months or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's true. My sister sent me a thing that said that Canadians will have quarantine hotels and they'll have this, and I was like, Canada would never do that. And now I literally don't trust anything the government says. I don't trust anything public health officials say, and I don't even know how long it's going to take for public health to regain any form of credibility once most of this gets uncovered. I still have no idea how people can cognitively let know that, well, most people don't know that there is no data for lockdowns, but know the significant harms of them and not see that there's no difference between places that lock down and don't. Like, I don't know how we can psychologically be okay with the harms. Yeah. That to me is the question I ask to people. If you can't present me with the data that there is a clear benefit, because the onus is on presenting that, yep. then how can you justify the the increase in cortisol, the the stress, the loss of life? I mean, to me... Oh, the suicides, the drug overdoses. How many people... Well, the average American's 41 pounds heavier. Children are, what, three times more likely to be diabetic now. I mean, the, what we've done to oh, young people, child, I can't even... Uh, child I, development. Yeah, The gaslighting of... I, I was reading a post from the New York therapist on Instagram the other day, and it said, like, essentially said, the idea that children are resilient is such bullshit. It's like, essentially... She, she said it much more eloquently and with more gray, but essentially said that the... that children might seem like they're fine, but that's just keeping on a brave face. And we all know that because we're healing stuff from our childhood where everything was fine. And she used that as evidence. And I'm like, that's so true. Like the AAP, the American Association of Pediatrics, I saw that they said 
there is no evidence to support the idea that wearing masks cause harm to children from a developmental perspective. And so, you know, I read below the thread and, and people were saying like, so wait, our, our bar of evidence is there is no research to suggest, not looking at the research that suggests the importance of attunement and connection and, and development to being able to see people's faces, which that's how we learn empathy, actually. So who knows if we're going to get an onslaught of narcissism, add to that um, social media. The other thing that was interesting, which to me just went, how could you do this as an organization? They deleted everything that they had that supported the idea that attunement mattered or that face communication with seeing faces mattered. They deleted it all. And I, th I was the AAP, which I believe is the American Association of Pediatrics. And I was like, I can't believe this. Like that to me is just you evidence that you're lying. And, and that of course never makes it into the news. But how significant is that? This is a a, an expert association. You guys, I have a special announcement. I am excited to invite my listeners of the Dr. Tina show to my brand new CBD store. I've got several products inside the store to suit everyone's needs. I looked for years for a supplier that checked off all the boxes on quality, and I am happy to tell you about the products I finally come up with. I've got two gummy products inside the store. Both are hemp extract CBD phytocannabinoid gummies. One that supports a more calm state with added L-theanine and another to shield your immune system with ingredients like zinc and vitamin C along with the CBD. I've also got a high potency, truly full spectrum hemp extract oil synergized with other naturally occurring phytocannabinoids and MCT oil. This results in fantastic absorption in the gut. This oil contains several naturally occurring cannabinoids and terpenes. Terpenes are important plus an added proprietary blend for a robust profile. It contains less than 0.3% THC. It's extracted from high quality CO2 extraction process, and it comes in both a straight oil form or a convenient soft gel, which I like to keep in my purse for on the go. I've also got an amazing topical cream that I utilize for pain. I've tried countless pain creams over the years and test drove them all on my mom. And she says this one is her absolute fave. Every product is rigorously tested and comes with a certificate of analysis that you can find on the product page on the website. So head over to drtinahemp.com and use coupon code DRTINASHOW10 for 10% off your first order. That's drtinahemp, all one word, D-R-T-Y-N-A-H-E-M-P.com and use coupon code DRTINASHOW10 for 10% off your first order. I can't wait to hear what you think of them. The weirdest thing that I've experienced throughout all of this is even if I present data, if it doesn't go along with the song and dance, people immediately discount it, which shows such a low level yeah. of, of intelligence and low level of, of just, it's just a intellectual laziness, really, because they won't go look. A good example is uh, calling the vaccine gene therapy, which is what it is. And if you go to the Moderna website, it actually says that right on their website. It's in a link in my last podcast, if anyone's wondering. In November of 2020, there's an article uh, out of a, a genetic organization, and they I can't remember the exact one. I, that's also a link in the podcast. And they talk about 
the development of this vaccine and gene therapy. I mean, that's what it is. And then you say that and you immediately get dismissed by this parroted narrative, just like you said, that comes off the nightly news. And I know what you're talking about with the meet their objections before they make them thing. Like that's marketing 101, right? Yeah. And it's, it's so, it's, it's to the point where like, I don't even want to fight that fight anymore on a platform <laughs> where people, just ignorant people are going to come at me constantly. So I stopped, you know, I've, you can't say anything on that platform without going into a shadow ban anyway, but it's just, that's where we're at. There's no discourse. There's no conversation. There's no discussion. There's no debate. There's no, I was in a meeting recently and there was some friction and one of the younger uh, folks mentioned like, well, maybe we need a mediator. And I was like, no, this is called discourse. Like, this is what we do. You know, this is, this is how we roll. (laughs) And I mean, with all due respect, I get why, why this person said this, but I was just like, no, this is called having, it's okay to have conflict. It's okay. That's also science. That's kind of the premise of science. And so it really is, we have no idea the fallout on the children, which I, if I start to think about it, I go, I do, I fall into a deep, deep depression. I can't even fathom yeah. what, what the impact of all this is going to be, including the low grade hypoxia on their brain development and including the vaccination process. I mean, we're literally using Anxiety. children, we're using children as a shield for their yeah. parents' shitty lifestyle habits. I mean, with all due respect, that is these kids have zero risk of dying of COVID for the most part. They have a higher risk of getting hit by lightning, and we are using them as a shield to not spread, but the vaccine doesn't stop transmission. And I will say this as a disclaimer. I do not care what people do. If they want to get vaccinated, whatever makes them feel safer, it has definitely been shown to decrease severity of illness, decreased hospitalizations, and in some cases, decreased death. We have the data on that. Amen. I talked to my parents about it. I was objective. After I went through Delta, my experience with that, I was like, hey, yo, you guys really might want to reconsider this. This was gnarly. I don't think you're going to get through this one so well. I am an objective physician. I always have been around vaccines. My daughter's fully vaccinated. I am not an anti-vaxxer. I am too. I'm fully vaccinated. I considered this one. I I really did. I've taken the flu vaccine before and then learned about it. But It doesn't stop transmission. It never has been shown to stop transmission. We have had the data on that. The CDC came out and posted it on their website in September of 2020. They came out and said it again recently. I don't know how many times they have to say it, but I keep seeing this song and dance inside all the messaging in that little propaganda messaging sentence, like do it for the greater good, do it to protect your family. That's literally lying. Like what is the ethical standard that we put upon a physician? You tell your patient to get it so they don't infect grandma, but we know it's probably going to, you're still going to infect grandma. Like that's, that to me is where like the whole thing crumbles. And these are the words we cannot say out loud on social media, but that's literally, it, it destroys mandates. It, it, I mean, it destroys the foundation of everything that's getting pushed because it doesn't stop transmission and it doesn't work against very well against Omicron anymore. Anyway, I have a whole podcast episode about that if people want to hear it. And that's what really gets my goat is we are Hmm. now functioning on very flawed let's just call them lies. They were flat out. There are lies being perpetuated in medicine. And it, it's crazy making if I let it really, if I think on it too much, you know, and I, that's what gets me is how are we going to rebuild from this as a society where we're so divided that there are people who literally want me dead. They, I I have gotten death threats. They literally want me dead. They want my license revoked for spreading misinformation, for presenting studies that are not 
incorrect. And how do we recover from that? Because I think that line has been so drilled into the amygdala and limbic system of people's brains that there's not going, I guarantee you in 40 years from now, there's still going to be people that are like, you are a horrible person, Dr. Tina, for what you did, because they still think it stops transmission. And they think it's my duty to protect the people around me to get it. And that's like, I don't even know how to, that's why I'm asking. I don't even know how to process that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let me solve that. Uh, (laughs) Like, what do you make of this? You know, I have a couple thoughts on that. As a, when a company chooses the design of their clinical trial, they pick outcomes that they know they need, you know, in order to be used as a product and also ones they know they're going to win. The outcome for the clinical trials was reduction of symptoms. Um, it was not reduction of transmission. They would have chosen reduction of transmission if they knew that it would be significant and they were likely to hit it. And the other thing too, though, is if you don't pick an outcome, you can then talk about it in the gray area of like, had we, like this reduces transmission. But they've never had an indication for doing that. They've never um, indicated data that that's true. And So I think just even that as a subject, now it's clearly obvious that they don't reduce transmission and it couldn't be more obvious. Um, And the data from Omicron has kind of made everything sort of fall apart very quickly. Psychologically, I mean, how do people recover from this? I mean, that's a really good question because the division that's been seeded into us is... You know, it's hard because like I think about your conversation about potentially needing a mediator in the dialogue you were having. And I think like, isn't this the core of all successful human relationships is to, is for there to be at the beginning, two people experience the same thing, right? Let's in a, in a relationship, we both experience some event. You and I might have totally different experiences of that event. And both of our experiences are actually valid in our own perspective. What dialogue and discourse does is that it allows us to explore those two truths to coexist. Intimacy is born from the ability for those two truths to coexist. But us to be able to discuss them and then find some sort of resolution. Mm -hmm. We have not had that modeled. I mean, censorship is actually the absence of that. The fact that, you know, formally pre-2020, If there was a discussion about public health measures that no one's ever done or medicines that have never been used, academic spaces would be the place where they might have debates or dialogues online. There'd be forums and webinars and all that kind of stuff. We'd be debating it. We'd be negotiating. We'd be trying to understand it from all the experts of the world. But you look back and you see like even the head of the NIH um, sent an email asking to uh, basically lambasted uh, the creators of the Great Barrington Declaration. And so you could see there was an active effort to, n- to not have discourse. Um, and really, when I look at things like censorship, the inability to even acknowledge the what you've been talking about all along, its impact on health, people who have certain health conditions are obvious. Why wouldn't we talk about that? You see all these people who've had vaccine side effects Why wouldn't we talk about that? Like when you're considering an intervention, informed consent says you must be informed about all the possible side effects. To censor it is actually to violate the ability to get information, not to mention not telling people or gaslighting them for their experience, which I don't know if anyone's 
heard the story of Kyle Warner, the mountain biker who he was a national champion. He can no longer compete because of his side effect. And he got threats for speaking out. He got, and he was just Mm -hmm. like, I'm not against it. I got it. Like, how could you say I'm against it? I'm just a guy trying to, trying to do what was right. And he's like, I just want people to know what could be possible. You never think you're going to be the person, but like that inability to, because we think, well, if people get access to this information, it will create hesitancy, Mm -hmm. but that's actually healthy hesitancy. It's actually healthy to be hesitant about wanting to put something in your body. If your alternative is no job because you didn't get it, that's actually not a choice. That is coercion because you're putting their survival, like Maslow's basic needs are on the line and people are going to do what they need to do in order to survive. So when I look at like, there's been government and public health have not modeled discourse. They've actually modeled division and they've modeled this behavior within us. They've created this. This is on them. And when you study the history of governments, this is a classic strategy. If you study propaganda, this yep. is a classic strategy. This, is, this isn't by chance or by accident. It's like when I heard Justin Trudeau call the group misogynists and racist, I was like, what's he planning? Because that wasn't by mistake. Like this is, that is an orchestrated sentence to create, I knew that, it was obvious. And then of course they furthered more mandates. And yeah, in Quebec and Ontario, or in Ontario. And the way that we, I mean, one is to try to explore that when we're talking about all of this, um, and you do a good job of this, I try to do a good job of this, is like, how do we stay in a space where everyone's experience is actually welcome? Like, everyone's opinion is is present and acknowledged. And then there's an exploration that attempts to happen from, you know, as we said at the very beginning, a a regulated place. The only way through this is to be able to create space again for discourse and dialogue. And perhaps investigations will create that, perhaps news outlets speaking out and actually sharing real news that isn't you know, just the narrative. I mean, really, our media has failed us too. In oh, so many hugely. Parts, They're right? responsible. Like, I hope them very, res- I hope them maybe more responsible than the government because it's, it's, you know, it's like you read a paper, I'm reading the paper, I'm reading the scientific paper, maybe it's a preprint, maybe it's been peer reviewed. And then I'm hearing something completely different over here. And you're like, but, but here's the data from like, this week. <laughs> this right. is real. This is real in real time. And they, it's just nowhere. It's nowhere to be heard. And now we have children. I, I don't know if you st- saw that very disturbing clip. It came out yesterday. I saw it on Instagram. I think it was out of Quebec because they were oh, speaking yeah. French. The yeah. kids, they interviewed the kids and the kids were saying that, you know, if you're anti-vaxxer or you haven't been vaccinated, you should go to jail. You should be locked up. I mean, so this is a whole generation coming up of people who think that we're Satan for standing in the truth. And that's the part that gets me. I, that's, that's really the part that gets me. It's just like, when I saw that, Mm. I thought, oh, we're not Uh, coming back from this. I saw that too. And uh, fuck as a Canadian, that was hard to see. 
um, I'm like, did this come from my country? Really? Can we blame France? They were speaking French. Um, <laughs> I, the French, the Frenchies in Quebec. <laughs> yeah, I, that's what I call my Quebecy friends. I call, I call my Frenchy friends. <laughs> they are the Frenchies. I love them. Um, I that was hard to watch. You know, I sent it to a friend of mine who is an expert in child development. And I'm really excited to talk to her further about it. But we sort of exchanged briefly on it. Um, there was another, and that video was alarming because what it's doing is it is, children don't have the ability to have objective, um, high-level brain conversations about these things. They, It's not their job. Their job is to have fun and to play. And they've also been taken away from the ability to do that. But for sure, those kids were pre-selected and primed probably by their parents, perhaps by the news, but definitely I would imagine by their parents, they were probably thought that way long before they got there. Um, but that is actually priming them to have a certain perspective. It's grooming them, which is really gross. The I saw another video from um, a health agency in a more central province in Canada. And they said they had, a, I think it was a pediatrician. I can't remember, but a kid was set up to ask, what do I do with my friends who aren't vaccinated? Can I still play with them? And the answer the doctor gave was, well, it's important that you talk to your friend to ask why, like basically, why are they not vaccinated? Perhaps they're afraid of needles. And so maybe you can go with them to go get their vaccine. And this is a really important conversation that you and your friends should be having. What? What kids should be talking about this? They don't have the ability to problem solve this and to dance in nuance. And then it said, but you should really also talk to your parents to see how they feel about you playing with unvaccinated children. Honestly, the fact that it doesn't reduce transmission and the fact that it doesn't really offer any threat to a child. Um, it's so low that it's hard to measure, which is not saying it doesn't happen. And it's also not saying, of you course. know, I understand that people's lives, it's interesting that the conversation about this has to always be qualified with other people's lives have obviously, people's lives have obviously been affected by COVID itself but they've also been affected by lockdowns and tyranny and fear and uh, lack of actual health information. You know, that it's interesting because when I first started talking about it, someone would say like, you don't care. Mm -hmm. And I was like, but wait, isn't this caring? Like public health should never oscillate around one thing. And like I shared a post of yours the other day that was about the data on um, obesity and just like, we should know this. And if we know this, we should do something about it. That post you shared. I mean, you've shared many, but that <laughs> one. And I got quite a few replies that were like, this is wrong. This, which I was like, what's wrong? Cause you can't just say it's wrong. Like you have to point out, what do you disagree with? Um, but people don't like that. They just lambasted a name on it. And they said, this is ableist. And I thought, well, that's, you know, I can, understand where that comes from. I mean, ultimately, a lot of the root of uh, obesity is not just in our food systems, but also trauma. Of course. And I'm like, we're not talking about any of that. But I thought this is really interesting. Like, it is ableist to be able to not just take responsibility for someone, ourselves and our health and our bodies, which can involve the healing of the trauma that might be at the basis of that. Um, but I thought this is really fascinating. Like, 
we can hold the truth that what your information you shared is true. And we can also hold that not everybody will be able to navigate that information. And not everybody has the access to good food, which is also a problem. Not everyone. Like, it's interesting that we just cancel something because it makes us uncomfortable. Yes. Which is what we're doing with any information that doesn't suit the narrative. You know, it's... I, I think yeah. it was that post on exercise. It was, it was, it was. It was, it was on, on, the, on the exercise component of how much risk you're put at. I mean, the risk of... The risk of poor outcomes with this virus are significantly higher in those who don't exercise. That's really what that was about. And yeah, I get called ableist all the time for that. And I can't solve the world's problems in a 400, you know, character right. post. And that's the part that it's just like, if you can move, you know, someone commented on that post and he said, I train quadriplegics. Like huh, I train right. them. I get them, I get them, I get them active, as active as they can be. And that was really the premise of that post. And it, you're right. They just dismiss it because that's the narrative that's been drilled into their head. It's conspiracy yeah, theory, ableist. It's yeah. Versus like we're, we're human beings and we're supposed to exercise. Like we're, that's right. Like if you move yourself up the exercise ladder, you I forget all the data on it. I can't quote it directly, but like just advancing yourself from a health perspective and exercise moves you up like a three times less mortality yeah. perspective. <laughs> yeah. If you get to like athletic, like expert athletic performance, it's something like a five time. You know, I remember Peter Atia talking about it on Joe Rogan's podcast. Um, but that's obvious. You know, that's like obvious. That's the number one thing you can do to improve the quality of your life and your health. And it, there's there's no drug that compares to exercise. No. There's no drug that can do what exercise can do. This really brings up such a, a greater, um, as I said, cancel culture preceding this really led us to a circumstance that was almost impossible to have any dialogue. And, you know, it... It serves one side, but doesn't serve the collective. And this lack of capacity for any discomfort, this lack of capacity for a truth that might be real, but isn't convenient or makes me like, if I hear that there's maybe declining efficacy, or even in some cases, depending on the data you look at, maybe leaning to negative efficacy if you're vaccinated, that's a lot to take in especially because you can't unvaccinate yourself, right? That's tough. And I get that. I, that is so hard. And I, my heart goes out to everyone who has to deal with that information. But use that, that anger and that grief to go after the people who have lied, you know, to, to at least speak up. And I had someone write me the other day when I shared something that was relevant. Oh, yeah, it was, I shared your post, <laughs> another one, with Boris Johnson yesterday. Yeah. And... They said, oh, good, another account that is about people feeling good, sharing stuff like this. People come to your page for peace. And I was like, my page is not designed to give people peace. Like, that might be your expectation of my page, mm -hmm. but my job is not to meet your expectation. She said, stay in what you know. This is classic. I get this yeah. one all the time. Stay in your lane. My fucking car, my road my lane. Like, sure, I'm not going to go quote and say I'm an epidemiologist and this is the medical advice I have for you. I would never do that. And I never do that. But it certainly is a lane that I can drive in. And what was so interesting to me about it is 
is I had to come to terms with this ages ago, and I'm sure you've had to come with great terms with it. It's like, my job isn't to make you feel good. My job is to just tell you what truth I know. I would way rather be respected than liked. And if you come to my page seeking peace, well, no relationships that are deep and amazing are peaceful all the time. Right. There's actually an absence of peace a lot of the time. There's conflict and friction. And I'm like, this is conflict and friction. Like, my job isn't to change my page so you feel good about yourself. Yes. Right? Like, if you want that, stop following me. Like, that to me is one of the greatest learnings I have, which is, again, belonging. Right? It's this challenge of belonging. Like, I want someone to like me. Oh, well, fuck. If I can't tell the truth so they like me, then I guess I'll just not tell the truth and then they'll like me. And then that passive manipulation of saying, because anyone who does that really thinks if I shame them or, or say I'm going to remove my attention or affection, then maybe they'll change and make me less uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And maybe I might, especially when I say, I'm unfollowing you, then maybe I might chase them back and say, please follow me again. Or why are you unfollowing me? These are people who think that if they shame or change other people, they will be chased. And so they really have childhood shit to deal with. That's interesting to think about, you know, it's, it's even interesting that you got any pushback on that exercise post, because those were all studies. That wasn't my, none of that's my opinion. It's like I shared data, actual data from studies that and as a scientist, and you've been trained in science, you understand data to me is my, um, I'm the weird girl that when I get insomnia and anxiety in the middle of the night, I read studies. Data I love is, studies too. Data soothes me. Data is objective. <laughs> There's no emotion. I love There's that it soothes you. It's no emotion, right? So to me, data is data. It, I do not give a shit what somebody's reaction to the data is because it's just data. Like in my, I, I guess because I've been trained to not react. I don't yeah. have any reaction. It is what it is. I I go to conferences. I hear something shocking. I don't get mad at the person presenting the information. <laughs> can you imagine? You're like, can you, can you please get off stage? That's I don't what like what you're presenting. But that's what they're trying to do to us. I tr- I shut off my DMs. I can't even receive DMs anymore. I can't be tagged unless I follow you. I don't have, there's no way to get through to me because I was just so tired of it, letting that energy in. Yeah. I just can't. And it really didn't hurt my growth, to be honest with you, um, just as a side. But yeah. I can't imagine getting upset about data and shooting the messenger. It's the most interesting. And I think it does come from that place of they're defending the, the group they belong to. Right, exactly. You know, and it's it's very interesting to me. It's also been very interesting to me psychologically to see the uh, just volumes of excuses that I've heard. And I try to express like the virus doesn't care if you have 10 million excuses why you can't get healthy. It's still preferentially right. selecting for this group of people. Hmm. I mean, quite literally, if it was, if it did come out of a lab, it is... It, let's just play with that idea of that hypothesis, which has somewhat been thrown around. Um, if it did come out of a lab, they've done a really damn good job of engineering it to strike unhealthy, frail, obese people that are inflamed. It, it, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It preferentially is selecting that group of people. And the virus doesn't kill the person, their immune system does. And so the pushback that I get is so interesting to me to look at it from a objective psychological point i'm just like this is so weird watching human beings melt down and have feelings about objective data and i think it's stemming from a place of fear and this sort of like 
oh, shit, I maybe let my health dilapidate for however long and now here we are and what do I do? Maybe feeling like it's too late, maybe feeling disempowered. I'm trying to empower them, which is the irony. Right. Isn't it? It's like <laughs> that fear of death, you know, fear of death is, is we'll do anything to escape that for good reason, you know, and I also find the, from a psychological perspective, what's fascinating is we, if, if the data makes me feel a certain way, then I will want to stop other people from feeling that way because I will always want to protect people from feelings that I don't have the capacity to hold myself. Like when someone goes through a breakup, I don't try to save them from it because I know the transformative nature that a breakup can bring. I, I don't try to save them from it. I'm like swimming it, cooking it, because you're being invited to be born in a different way. And it's the same with grief. It's the same with when someone reads data that they don't agree with or they don't like uh, or they're angry about. It's like they're trying to stop you from someone else getting that feeling instead of being like, what is actually here for me? Like I had a friend react to something I posted the other day and gave good feedback. I was totally open to the feedback. And, and that's important to be able to discern what's true and what's not. And people who love you will sometimes give you good feedback. They're definitely better than, than a lot of, than, than most people. But what was interesting is this person said to me that um, maybe they should explore themselves why they're frustrated by my approach or what I said. And I said, you know, we had a great conversation. And at the end of it, I said, like, perhaps it's also because there's truth in what I'm saying. And that's it is like, we want to save someone else from that feeling of truth. But, you know, like you said earlier, data's data. And truth doesn't give a fuck about dialogue. Truth doesn't give a shit about dialogue first, because truth is an abstract idea. But it also, if we truly were after the most healthy, smart, efficient, um, protective, loving way of moving through this, we'd actually want discourse. We'd actually want discussion. Um, and I don't know, when I try to be objective about that statement, I actually don't know how anyone can disagree with that. I don't. I don't know how anyone can disagree with the desire for a bunch of really smart people to get together and say, how do we do this? And how do we change as data and information comes in? Because that's the other thing. It's like, since the thing we started at the start, we're like, wow, let's keep doing that. That keeps working. <laughs> and it's not working. You know, it's not working. No, gosh, it's fascinating. I, it's so fun to talk to you about this, because it helps me look beyond my lens, you know, and explore this in a way that maybe I hadn't pondered or adding bits of information to it that helped me make more sense out of it. Because there's times when I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with it? everyone? Has everyone gone insane? <laughs> <laughs> like, is it? And then I start to talk to people and I do get inquisitive and I try to find out where is this coming from? And often I have found actually, truthfully, when I've, when I've inquired, there's usually a loved one at home that's high risk. Yeah, exactly. There's always a source. They're either high risk or somebody they love dearly and rely upon heavily for emotional support, yeah. like a parent or a sibling or somebody who's just really didn't ask for this, you know, somebody who's had a um, 
some kind of uh, organ replacement or somebody who's right. in an immunocompromised position who just did not ask for this to be at risk for, and they are. And it's unfortunate. This is how, I mean, that's the thing. My background really be, be, before medicine was in animal behaviorism and viruses mm. cull herds. That's what they do. Yeah. They come in and they cull herds and they they depopulate to get rid. I'm If you ask a rancher, hey, What's going to happen when if a virus hits your herd, they're going to tell you the sickly ones aren't going to make it. We're going to isolate them. The strong, healthy ones will be fine. And yeah. they'll all be stronger for it in the end because they'll have immunity. And it's like, why can't we have that conversation about humans? And it's I know it's hard. I think it's something to do with our consciousness. Like, because we're aware of our awareness on some level, like, you know, what is that spider that after it has sex, the I think the female eats the male or like something like that? The praying mantises do yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, praying praying mantises do that. Like at at some point in time, we woke up and continue to wake up to the impact of choices we make that were formerly evolutionary, right? Like when humans invaded spaces of other humans and colonized them, which wasn't that long ago, still happening. It's like they raped and pillaged. And there were biological reasons for that to get the the offspring of the people who were coming in into the into the women and into the civilization. That as an act is horrendous. Um, and so it's fascinating when we talk about like the culling of a herd or that the people who have the most immune um, susceptibility to this, there's an emotional aspect, right? Because we think like, well, that is actually the death of humans. That's the death of people we care about. And that is true. And it is actually how it works, you know, and that's sad. You know, it's like, that's hard to come to terms with. I think there's an idea that our consciousness makes us in some way biologically immortal, but we're not biologically immortal. Like this body ages, this body is a gift. This body is the, you know, what do some people call it? A meat sack that we're just- It's the meat you know, suit. Right. It's our, it's our meat suit. <laughs> right. And <laughs> That's like, what I call it. It's hard to come, you know, I think cognitively, our consciousness makes it hard for us, you know, because a dog doesn't loathe its day when it might die. But humans do either consider their death or avoid the thought of it altogether. And I think this as a collective experience has really made us- think about death and face death, you know, like in research, when someone gets a stent and basically was going to die and then gets an intervention, their lifestyle changes, about 10% of them change after six months. So they're like literally on death's door. And we would think death is a great motivator. But in the it's research, not. what they found about that is that it's actually too much to consider, so it gets overwhelming. So in order to treat the overwhelm of confronting mortality, we go back to the same habits that we had before that likely were you know, filtering us from the experience of mortality. When you actually go into mortality, though, it is liberating. You know, you see anyone who's told, hey, you have six months to live, they become, for the most part, everything they've ever wanted to be. They start to not give a fuck and they start to lay boundaries down. They start to tell the fucking truth. And we all actually should face that reality because depending on our age, we might go, oh, well, the average age this person lives is da-da-da. And so we're like, well, I can plan this far into my future. No one can. We never know when our time is. And I think that is one of the most confronting things as people um, and so 
It's hard to separate facts from emotionality, but that is actually the most important work because if you can't pay attention to the truth of life, you can't actually make great decisions. And there's an interesting paradox that occurs in that is like, look at everything that's occurred today. Like if people are saying, hey, don't look at that. That's not the truth. This is the truth. Well, anyone who's been in an abusive relationship or been gaslit, what happens is, is you start to go crazy because you start to live in a world where the truth, where the, where lies are the truth. And so, of course, if you're living in a world where you're denying actual reality in order to survive, you will get sick. You will, ha- you will disassociate from your knowing. And I think this is an invitation back to that knowing in a lot of ways. If you can tolerate the dissonance that teachers like you create, which that, and I, I would, I hope I create sometimes, is important. Like, sorry that you feel uncomfortable. Welcome to the truth. Now you're free. Okay, what are you going to do about it? Okay, let's change. That's the title of your next book. Sorry you feel uncomfortable. Welcome to the truth. (laughs) Sorry it makes you uncomfortable. I like that. Welcome to the truth. Yeah, it's, I mean. It's a a tough one. And I think it's a tough pill to swallow. You mentioned narcissism. And I think that for any of us who have grown up uh, or dealt with intimate relationships or siblings or family dynamics where there was strong narcissism and gaslighting, we all saw it pretty quick when yeah. it came at us at a government level. It was just like, oh, I know this one. I've, I've you know, I've been here. So I, I think some of us were, came into this with a skill set that put us on the warrior path because we could see it very clearly. And then there were others who, I think there were others who either had been so abused that they mm. fell into their role quickly, yeah. which is the abused that be quiet, you know, just take it and get, I used to be that person, just be quiet and take yeah. it. So the person doesn't flip out and keep beating you. I've lived that for a long time. And when you come out of that, you know, then I just wanted to roar all the time, but I think we're going to see a lot of roaring. I think a lot of people are sort of just in the role of the abused and taking it. And I think there's others who just have never been confronted with this sort of level of evil and can't believe it's happening. And then there's people who just don't believe that kind of evil exists on the planet. And so they're like, why would our governments and big, big pharma ever do anything to harm us when, you know, some of us 20 years ago, were like, big pharma is the devil, yo. <laughs> I was like, would you please prescribe this as you guys are saying that? Uh, so it's, you know, there's a lot of different versions of what people's experiences are at this point. And when I, I know it, cause when I say things to them, their jaws drop and they're like, what are you talking? I mean, I told somebody recently, I was like, you know, it doesn't stop transmission. They said they got vaccinated and boosted to protect grandma. And I'm like, you, you do know that that's not true. And they were like, they got very defensive. Right. And I could mm-hmm. see it. And I was like, I'm not going to go any further with this one, but that's the kind of stuff that's we're up liberating against. though. Like that's liberating. And you know, I, I think it's important that we all recognize that as a collective, we're going through a trauma. Like this yes. is traumatic. And, you know, when you were speaking about someone going into that sort of abusey state, like into that fawning state, as they call it in that fight, fly, freeze, fawn. I mean, 
I, I think you nailed it. I was like, how is it that some people recognize what's going on from the beginning or, or began to, to become aware as more information came up versus others? And I was like, you know, to me, the common denominator is they're all people who had, who, as I said earlier, like existed within a story and a narrative they were taught to live and then got kicked out of it and now are aware that narratives exist. And so I think this is a, it's that, like, if you've ever experienced abuse, you likely saw it. You know, if you, if you've ever moved through it and, and released yourself from it, much like anyone who's been through a relationship with an abusive government. Like I have a friend who's from Venezuela. She's like, yes. oh my God, I just watched all of this happen. Like this literally just happened. And yes. it's like Canada, you know, Canadians, liberation is not really in our ethos. You know, it's not to say that we don't value the idea of freedom or the idea of kindness, but like people make a joke around the world that we say sorry all the time. Well, that's fawning. Like, I don't want any conflict. I'm just going to apologize. You know, it's very fascinating that at this point, you know, I think of like, in the, we're still part of the Commonwealth, any Commonwealth countries, liberation's not at the core. They're still, the queen's still at the helm, yep. you know, but the U.S., as much as we worldwide or the criticism of the U.S. of itself sometimes is its overt individuation, like the people that overtly value freedom, I think we're all going to be pretty grateful um, that that's true there. You know, I hope it holds. I if the U.S. falls, it's all going down. So I don't think it will. You know, you guys are too no because your courts have protected you, and yeah. you have politicians who are willing to completely go against. Yeah, that in and of itself is it's it, without the U.S. I think the the whole world could have possibly fallen. Yeah, that's what I mean. If the U.S. goes down, we're in <laughs> the whole world's in deep trouble because we're 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 the last vestige of of this, and we are one of the. I, I think we are the only country where we have. I mean, the First Amendment is everything. Yeah, we don't it's, have that, you know. And we have the Second Amendment to back up the first. <laughs> so yeah, I, <laughs> I know there's always been a criticism of that, but you look at what's going on in Australia, and you're like, well. Kind of wish they, they probably still wish they had their guns, you know? And yeah, yeah, I think we lived under the naive belief that the world would never be dark again. Um, mm -hmm. But for a lot of people in the world, I recognize the privilege of that statement because mm -hmm. for a lot of people of the world, they have only known darkness and only known lies and deceit. And that's the nature of humanity is that love certainly is our guiding principle and can, can be the the thing that moves us through everything. And ultimately, it does win. Let's say that. Um, and yes. deception and, I mean, ultimately humans, when power and money and status are on the line, they will be as deceptive as can be. That's why, of course, n narcissism naturally moves up the tree in companies to P CEO positions. Not to say, obviously, every CEO is a narcissist. There's incredible kind, empathic, nar or <laughs> empathic nurse. There's kind, empathic CEOs out there. But it is by design self-selects to move towards that. I think, you know, a lot of companies have shifted that. But, you know, as you experience more reverence for others and yourself, you can't help but have reverence for the planet and how we treat it. And I, you know, I feel like we're either going to figure that out and uh, change and have reverence again for how we treat our bodies and how we treat the earth, 
or we're going to go extinct. My belief right now is we're probably going to go extinct. And that's sad, but it's truth. And no matter what, Mother Earth will always, she'll just shake and maybe we're just the microbiome and we'll be gone. Right now, we are definitely Candida. (laughs) 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 Mother Nature always wins. She, she, yep. Yeah, you're right. She just shakes balance. She shakes and she does it. And I, you know, I think the the coyotes, I look around where I live and I look at, I watch the coyotes and the deers and I'm like, they're all going to be fine. We're the ones who can't sort it out. Yeah, I know. Right. Well, until then, you know, like you mentioned, you said, you said that when people are, have their last six months to live, it's like, fuck it, let's go for it. That's exactly how I felt the minute this pandemic hit. I was like, let's go. This is the zombie apocalypse I've been figuring was coming. I might as well do, do <laughs> yeah. my best. You had a vision <laughs> when you were young, which is yes. really... And I, I try to yeah. hug every person I can. I try to love every person I can. I do come from a place of love. And I I know that sometimes my truths are harsh, but what's the point of sugarcoating an objective study, right? Like it well, is what it is. love is telling the truth. Love is not, you know, always peace love the truth telling the truth to one another i miss you i feel like i take you for granted i feel taken for granted i feel disconnected those that's all love yes because it's the invitation to liberation and truth within the relationship it's no different than what is going on collectively oh i love that well i i vote we we leave it there because that was a good close where can everyone find you mark you can find me. I have a podcast called the Mark Groves Podcast. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Create the Love, and I also have a another Instagram called It's Mark Groves, which is more dedicated to specifically the psychology and um, what's going on in the world today. And I really try to hold an objective lens in that space. Um, and so, yeah, those are those are all the places you can find me. I love it. We will make sure all the links are there. And we have to re-record my episode on your podcast someday. Oh, my God. Yes, we do. I'm like, <laughs> I've been sad that we didn't have it up. And I'm like, I'm ready. But although now we got different things to talk about. So yeah. I'm yeah. pumped about that. Before the news was sad, was terrible. And now the news is coming true. So we can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, that's interesting to think of the, pr- the previous one versus this one. Yeah. Um, the universe didn't want us to release that one. So there we're good. I trust it's- that it all works out as it should. It shall. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you. I appreciate your truth. And I appreciate you bringing the love aspect into all of this. So we will connect soon. Thank you for having me um, and for trusting me with your people and your platform. Thanks for listening to The Dr. Tina Show. Please be sure to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Tina, that's D-R-T-Y-N-A and Dr. Tina 2.0, as well as visit my website at drtina.com. This is a Resonant Media production produced by Drake Peterson and mixed by Chris McCone. The theme song is by John the Gilt. As always, you can email the show at podcast at drtina.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. See you next week. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practices of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. 
The content on this podcast is intended not to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.